about history from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past. Hello, I'm Sue Stampfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso, and we're going to discuss utopian movements. Why were they formed? What was their purpose? And how did the various communities come together? Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Taylor Spence, a PhD and independent scholar from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he's someone who studies these groups and is the author of a forthcoming book, Grasping Democracy, the Settler Colonial Turn in Early National America. It's by the University of Virginia Press. Um, Welcome, Taylor. Hey, hi, Susan. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Well, I guess to start out with, um, could you explain what utopian movements were? Yeah. Um, you know, we have a long tradition of of kind of back to the land movements here in the United States. Um, and people might be familiar with them more recently, like communal movements uh, in the 1970s, uh, known as communes, when people would go and live off the land and live together and share all of their property in common. But this movement actually started uh, almost at the very beginning of the nation's history. And that fact, I think, got me started on kind of thinking about the deeper meaning of utopias in uh, U.S. and Canadian history. But what they were, were they were um, communities, landed communities, usually away from urban centers, where a group uh, would pool all of their resources, they would move out into the countryside, starting in the early 19th century, Uh, They would pool all of their financial resources together, buy a piece of land, live together, work the land together, divide up all the work. And the idea was that then they would have more time to be able to spend um, on artistic pursuits, on poetry readings, on scholarly investigations. They would have evenings where they would uh, dis, uh, they would have disinquisitions on uh, natural philosophy or religion uh, or whatever. And they saw themselves as kind of very advanced and trying to bring about the transformation of the world. And there was something like probably... Um, between 60 and 100 of these communities in the course of the first half of the 19th century, uh, they followed the track of westward expansion. So they tended, they started in New England, but they moved across the state of New York into the new states of Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan, and and kind of spread uh, along that, what we call in American history, the old Northwest. And the final thing I'll say about them, just to contextualize them as a broad movement, is that they were singled out by Marx and Engels in uh, their their investigations in uh, political economy um, as kind of the beginnings of socialism. So that was how they were really identified more broadly, was as the beginnings of what we call today socialism and communism. So what about them made them become prominent or, or to form in the antebellum era? Is there something about the time period? Is it the context of the the other events that were going on? But 
But but why then? Yeah, that's a great question. So Ralph Waldo Emerson identified the first 50 years. He actually wrote in, I think it was 1846, looking back at the first half of the 19th century, that this was a period what he called a, a foment of projects to save the world. And this, we should understand, as part of the legacy of the American Revolution, uh, the revolutionary generation, which was starting to die in the early 19th century between like 1800 and 1820, Jefferson died, Thomas Jefferson died in 1826. They really understood the um, revolution as a kind of great step forward for all of humanity, right? It was the first uh, nation state. Uh, it was the first rule of law society. And so reform that really kicked off reform in the United States and Canada, mostly in the United States, but also in parts of Canada. And they truly believed that somehow they were supposed to do something, right? They were supposed to change the world for the better. And so utopians were part of a broad movement that included uh, temperance, right? Uh, the abolition of drinking, women's suffrage, um, uh, abolitionism, obviously, um, prison reform, um, and uh, what we also think of as the second great awakening, a kind of reflowering of evangelical Christianity. So this is a broad, big, meaty movement of reform and social transformation. It's stymied any kind of overall analysis, although a lot of historians have tried because it's so diverse. So utopians are part of that. Okay. So um, I've heard a little bit about Robert Owen, for example. Um, so why was he significant? You know, what role does he play in in sort of starting the movement? Yeah, I, that's I, it. That's I'm so glad. Ones. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up Owen. So what's so fascinating about Utopians to me and always attracted my attention is how they are both. If you remember that in classical times, Janus. He was always looking into the past, but also looking into the future, right? So utopians have that Janus-faced quality. They're, they're, they're both obsessed with the future and trying to transform the world, as I said, as part of reform, but they're also very focused on what was being lost in the past. And so Owen is fascinating because he was a successful industrialist, right? This is also when the first industrial revolution is taking place. He owned a factory in Scotland in a place called New Lanark, Scotland. And he thought that there was a way that capitalism itself, and this is hard for us, I think, to get our heads around today, uh, when we're seeing some of the kind of maybe the what people are calling late capitalism, but this is early capitalism. And he believed that capitalism itself could be socially transformative in a positive way for society. And that while it was already manifest, while already some of the negative aspects of capitalism were manifesting, that is poverty, slums, uh, you know, uh, spreading of disease, um, poor healthcare outcomes, uh, cr criminality were manifesting in the, in, in the cities in Europe and, and also beginning in the United States, actually, in New York. Uh, he believed that there was a way to do capitalism that could make it really positively transformative. So he developed this model factory. And in this factory, uh, he had all of these innovative ways of managing time. Uh, they The factory employees had classes they attended. They had classes on 
you know, how to manage a home, how to keep, how to do personal hygiene, how to make arts and crafts, how to, you know, educate themselves. So he saw himself as the, in a classic paternalistic role, that is as the great father, right, who is going to teach his employees how to live a more uplifting and better life. And this was very attractive to the political powers of the day because they were very deeply embedded in capitalism. They wanted to use capitalism positively. And they thought, here's the guy who can solve the bad things about capitalism. He's going to create this utopian factory system, right? Now we know about you probably taught up your students about the Lowell factory complex in Massachusetts. And it was initiated along the same lines as a kind of model community, right? And especially because it was mostly young women who were working there, this paternalist idea was very deeply embedded in that system, right? These overseers in the factory were meant to make sure that these young women were safe and protected, uh, that they would be uh, okay because their families were letting them go to go work. So there is a deep relationship there. But what's fascinating about Owen is that when he was invited, he was actually feted in the White House when he was invited to come to the White House and to the United States to talk about his model uh, factory community, he immediately switched from industrialization to going out into the wilderness, as he called it, to transform the wilderness. So isn't that interesting? And this is the connection to my work. Here's that settler colonial piece, right? That somehow Europeans saw the United States as this future thinking, a future going place, a place where the future was coming, right, through democracy and and liberalism. But the minute they got into North America, they immediately reverted back to being pioneers and farmers and settlers, right? And so somehow American utopianism bridges those two worlds. And so Owen came, he settled the first official utopian community in a place in Indiana called New Harmony. He bought out a religious community that was already there. I think it was a Gosh, I should, I know I know this, but I forgot. I think it was a, um, a, um, some kind of, I think it was a Dutch reform, it was a Dutch reform Protestant mission, basically. He bought this mission and then settled in his first, in the first American utopian community along his, what his philosophy uh, called New Harmony. So um, could you take a second and explain to us what settler colonialism is? Yeah, absolutely. So settler colonialism is a broad, it's a global movement. It's an aspect of imperialism. It emerges out of uh, European empires in, um, and this is somewhat controversial, but basically it emerges in the process of transferring people from Europe to other places in the world and having those people settle and then create a kind of dominant political and economic framework in those places in order to take resources from them. So you think about, let's say, the Spanish conquistadors. There's a way that they were both there to, as we know, take gold, right, and bring that gold back from the Americas into Europe. But they were also there to settle the land. And they did that through a process called um, uh, the encomienda system, where they would literally take human beings and their land. These are indigenous folks who would live there for, you know, since time immemorial, they would take all of that, the land and the people, and then force them to labor for their own benefit. This is a form of settler colonialism. So 
colonialism is the broad umbrella. Settler colonialism is one form, as is, let's say, extractive colonialism. Now we see it today, let's say, just a contemporary example with oil fields in subs in the sub-Saharan Africa, right? In Ghana and places like that. It's the same idea of extracting the resources. So those are small populations of settlers. And then settler colonialism would be large populations of settlers. And so that would be places like Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, North America. Those are the preeminent settler colonial projects. There's also several in Africa, Zimbabwe, South Africa were examples there. So, so this would, would exist in the in the U.S., not just in colonial times, but in into the 19th century. Well, yes. And the question, of course, Susan, is, is the United States itself a colonial project, right? That is a very controversial thing and something that we're debating right now. Um, well, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about Charles Fourier. I know he was French. Um, and, and kind of how does he bring about these um, utopian communities? Yeah, so what happened there in the evolution of utopianism was that first Owen came in the 1820s, his first uh, New Harmony was established in 1824, and he believed in common property. And this idea was that you would not only share all the work of a community in common, but you would pool all of your resources and everyone would share those resources. And these, this early wave of utopianism was not successful. They almost, every single one of them, in fact, fell apart. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but overwhelmingly, we should just say that common property as a kind of um, social aim was not popular with American settlers. And you might, again, revert back to settler colonialism and say, look, if you have the ability to just steal land from indigenous folks or purchase it cheaply, why would you want to have common property? A common property regime, as we call it in political economy, uh, is a way of creating a kind of social safety net against other forces outside of you, right? So if you're a community of folks, you pool all your resources to protect yourself. That's not really necessary in a settler colonial system, right? Settler colonials have the ability to acquire property easily. So they were not successful. So along comes this second wave of utopianism led by Charles Fourier. And this is a French tradition. It comes out of a whole different kind of uh, aspect of feudalism and, and industrialization. And his argument was that there shouldn't be common property, but there should be something called a share system. So we would think of this now, uh, a common manifestation of, of the same kind of system would be like a credit union or a cooperative apartment, right? Or even like an, an agricultural cooperative. People are going to pool their resources together, but they're going to buy shares in a corporation and therefore be able to pull their equity and value out of the community if they want to. Okay. So this is a very different system. They're not pooling their resources in common property. They are pooling their resources in a corporation that owns the property, but they can still pull their value out anytime they want to. So it's more of a kind of social investment. And he called this phalan uh, the phalanx. Uh, that was the term he used. And in his vision of a utopia community, in some ways, it was much more akin to what we would think of today as kind of a model community or a gated community. He thought there should be rich people, middle class people, poor people, working class people, artisans. There should be a balance between agriculture and industry. In a sense, he was kind of 
what we would think of today as a kind of urban planner, but he was planning it in these idealized communities. And you can see right away between Owenism and Fourierism that one is much more radical, right? Owen was really egalitarian. Everyone was supposed to be the same, right? And that really fit with those early uh, revolutionary vision of like what the society was supposed to be. Fourier came along and was like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be too radical here. Uh, let's try to create an ideal society, but one that doesn't really take away uh, people's overall economic power and, and investment. And as you can imagine, Fourier was much more popular with Americans. And so without a doubt, the largest manifestation of utopianism was this was those based on the ideas of Charles Fourier. Okay. But, and maybe this is my own, you know, confusion on the topic. I always thought that um, Fourier was really promoted like gender equality. Well, that's a great question. I love that's probably one of the that's one of the core questions of my use of utopianism in my book is how equal were they for women? So certainly utopians were part of communities who thought of themselves as as very advanced thinkers, right? They wanted to do the most advanced and avant-garde things. And they did attract, uh, attract a lot of women, as well as supporters of women's liberation and equality. All right. And so they definitely are associated with the suffrage movement and with advanced thinking women uh, who saw themselves as fully equal to men. However, the way they played out in reality was not very liberating for women. Um, and in we know this from the daily records of many utopian communities, like, for example, um, uh, uh, Brook Farm in Massachusetts, that women did all of the traditional work that they always did, that is all the housework. And then they were also expected, though, to contribute to outdoor work. And men who were not, who often came to these communities and were not accustomed to hard labor, had a really hard time addressing themselves to it. If they were, let's say, a bookkeeper or a lawyer or something, and they wanted to be a part of this advanced community, then they had to get back to the land. And we know that someone like Nathaniel Hawthorne, the great American author, uh, was a member of Brook Farm. And he at first thought it was really cool to get out there and dig in the cabbages. But after a while, he got really, really over that. And finally, I would say that inevitably, this is a very patriarchal and male-dominated society. Men are the ones who own all of the property legally. That is in the eyes of the law. Women are not allowed to own property if they're married. Um, and they didn't have any political standing. So they couldn't be the co-signers of uh, the legal incorporation documents for utopians. And there was already inherent paternalism in the society. And so uh, particularly, and I think we should talk about free love at this point as well, particularly when it comes to kind of the norms of sex and sexuality, women were perhaps attracted to utopianism because it purported to give them greater freedom. But inevitably, this is a male-dominated society where women are still going to have to carry all the burdens of that freedom themselves. It's not like all of a sudden there's birth control or all of a sudden there's, you know, protections for them physically. And this is an area of utopianism that needs more research. But there are there's quite a bit of evidence to show that some women were actually quite um, endangered in utopian communities because they did not have traditional patriarchal structures to defend their themselves physically. 
but there were some, some of these communities were also, you know, didn't promote sex, right? Like the Shakers. Yeah. So there's a religious aspect to utopianism where there's a kind of intersection between Shakers and Quakers and other religious based communities, the Hutterites, for example, where they're extremely strict where sex is concerned and didn't and frowned upon any kind of like liberatory aspect. So utopianism itself, once you start to uh, drill down and look at each community, it's quite diverse. There were some that were very liberated, like for example, uh, my wonderful friend, uh, Andrew Jackson McDonald, who was a a chronicler of American utopianism. He visited all the utopian communities and he wrote these very detailed descriptions. And he had this fabulous breakfast one morning with a young woman who was wearing bloomers. Now, now, this was a big deal, these bloomers. Uh, they were named after a suffragette named Amelia Bloomer. And what they did is they gave women physically more freedom. Imagine if you were a young woman in 1845, you would be expected to wear a corset and a lot of other encumbrances, including very heavy skirts with muslin petticoats and underclothes that would make it extremely difficult for you to do things. And that was part of a patriarchal dress code, right? Women were meant to not move and not be able to be physically liberated. Right. And so here you are in this utopian community. You have to go out and dig in the cabbages. How are you going to do that if you have these big, heavy skirts that are gathering mud and dirt on the bottom of them and getting wet? And so it's very difficult. So bloomers were useful because what they did is they they shortened the skirts dramatically into what we might think of as like a kind of T length uh, skirt today. And then they let women wear these pants called bloomers, uh, and stockings and shoes. None of their skin was exposed, but they were much more liberated. So here's this young woman in bloomers having this debate with Andrew Jackson McDonald. And she was very opinionated and very liberated and very free in ways that young women today would, I think, recognize, but that was not the norm. I mean, he wrote a whole story about her because she was so unique, right? So I think we shouldn't go too far in seeing utopias as like that liberating for women. Certainly they tried to, but really the mainstream of women's rights was outside of utopianism and in the political realm of uh, the fight for the vote really led by, you know, people, as I'm sure you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others. So, um when did so when was this conversation taking place uh between the the young woman and 1846, and it was at a place uh, in New Jersey, a well-known um, uh, Fourierite community called the North American Phalanx. And um, this young woman was very critical of the leaders of the the male leaders of the utopian because the utopian community because she did not feel that they were doing it the right way. And inevitably, this is what happens to utopianism: is that they all kind of fall apart. And the consensus is, is that if people would have been more dedicated and more committed to the ideals of the community, then they would have succeeded. But what happens is, and this is what I think is so fascinating about them, one of the things that is so fascinating about them, is that inevitably it's always seen that the outside world seeps in to the community, right? And it somehow, you know, pollutes it and destroys the purity of its mission. And the reason I love this story about this young woman is that she was so idealistic and she was so committed, right, to the idea of this ideal community. And so there we see, I think, the seeds of later transformations, right? This is a, this is a young woman who in today's 
uh, world would be voting avidly and working as an organizer or being out trying to transform the world. And you see that young woman in 1846, she's already seeing that this world can be better for people like herself. But these utopian communities failed her inevitably. And they did, in the end, all kind of fall apart and go by the wayside. But that doesn't mean that the tradition goes away. It comes back, you know, almost by decade through the history of the United States. And it's still with us today. So what what happens to these communities? Do they disappear around the time of the Civil War? Do they continue? Um, they actually disappear... Yeah, they disappear before the Civil War, and I think that's also significant. They disappear as American expansionism increases. And this is where the intersection with my work really comes about, because my argument about utopianism is that, in fact, while there's a lot of neat kind of cool and odd and even amusing and funny aspects of them, they are still manifestations of settler colonialism. And they are a very idealized version of expansion. And they do see using the land and creating community in a very idealistic fashion. But in a settler colonial system, right, where really what's going on here is the expropriation of indigenous homelands and their resources for the good of other people, interlopers or colonizers, um, utopians were really just a form of expansion, right? And so after the Mexican-American War uh, and after the United States acquires, you know, a, a big chunk of the sovereign uh, nation of Mexico, uh, and as expansion becomes much more uh, aggressive, particularly after the gold rush in 1848, it's interesting how utopian communities just kind of fade away. Uh, and people's energy is channeled into broader expansive movements and abolitionism, of course, and this question of uh, chattel slavery in a liberal nation state like the United States becomes the primary political question. And utopians are seen as um, a feat, as old fashioned, as kind of quaint, but not really that powerful. Now, it should be said that abolitionists themselves tried utopianism, right? And probably the most famous example, and you can read about this in a wonderful book um, called The Black Hearts of Men by John Stauffer, um, this, this, there was a black utopia in upstate New York that was owned and founded by a white, a very wealthy white abolitionist named Garrett Smith, who bought a big giant, who owned a massive amount of land in the state of New York, and he gave it to free African people who had, many of whom had escaped from slavery. And he saw in the process of farming, the ability that they would have to own property, both would give them the vote because New York had a voter restriction that you had to own property in order to be a voter. And so he gave them enough property so they could vote. But he also believed in a very paternalistic way that allowing African-Americans to own their own land and work on it would give them a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives as if they needed that, right? It's a, it, this is so classically white paternalism. Like, here I am, this rich white man. I'm going to give these free black people a purpose. They had their own purpose. No one asked them what they wanted, but they he offered this land, and many took him up on this. And not only was it uh, free African-Americans who farmed the land in, in a place called New Elba, New York, in, in upstate New York, but it was a man named John Brown. And John Brown lived with these African-American farmers. And this is where he began to conceive 
of his uh, attack on the slave power, right? And this is where he conceived of first uh, Potawatomi Creek in Kansas, which is part of a thing, a story we call Bloody Kansas, and finally his attack on the uh, arsenal and armory uh, in Virginia that would uh, bring him to national and even global notoriety, right? Uh, As he began to try to uh, end slavery physically. So there is a relationship or connection to a much broader and more I think powerful and important moment in American history, which does bring about the civil war uh, and utopianism in upstate New York. Well, and Garrett Smith is Elizabeth Cady Stanton's cousin. And uh, he he meets her, her husband on, uh, on his, his land at, at his home. And, and so, yeah, there's a lot of connections between all of these people. Yes, and in fact, Garrett Smith was also a stop on the Underground Railroad, so uh, a very important figure in this moment, and was very deeply, imp- you know, impressed by utopianism, and and saw in the land the possibility of liberation. Now, the problem, of course, is that this is still settler colonialism, right? And inevitably, he did not give these free Africans the chance to succeed. He gave them very poor land in a very cold place. It's in the foothills of the Adirondacks. And they didn't succeed. And so then their failure becomes, in some people's minds, an example of, oh, well, you know, there you go. You try to help Africans have full enfranchisement in the society and they can't succeed. But they weren't given really the tools and means of full success, right? And again, they weren't consulted about what they would like to succeed, in fact. Well, um, one of the things that I ask all of our experts to, um, to tell us is, to imagine that they're hashtags, um, mm. that these people in the past actually had social media and how would they, you know, what kind of hashtags would they create to um, promote their their ideas or their their programs? And it's so a great, I love this project. So the hashtags, I wrote a few down, but the one I'll talk about is called hashtag fight the old system. And I think this is one of the most revealing aspects of American utopianism. Over and over, utopians said that what they were doing was fighting the old system or fighting again with the old system. And it's not clear, honestly, what they meant by that. But over a lot of research and study, I think what I've come to understand about them is that they thought that something in the past, in the pre-industrial past, right, Something had been left undone. And part of what they felt they needed to do to transform the world and bring about this kind of utopian dawn, this new age, was to go back and fix that thing that they had not been able to achieve before. And what was that? Well, to them at the time, remember this is early industrialization, these are people who had been losing a traditional agrarian way of life. They had lost the communities, the networks, right, that uh, rural communities had as they were being pulled off of the land and inserted into new capitalist labor regimes, working in factories, working in mills, working in the city, uh, working in transport. And so there was a sense on the part of utopians that that they were losing something. They were losing something valuable. And so what's so ironic about them, and this is that Janus idea again, right? They felt they had to go back to go forward. And I love that, right, for historians, because that's in a way... I think what we believe, right, as historians, that somehow we need to study the past 
to move forward in the right way. As idealistic as that may be, and I know there's lots of pushback against this, but I basically do think that that's what we try to do in history is study the past to learn about how to move forward. And so utopians wanted to fight in that old system. They wanted to create a more egalitarian and fair world based on those old terms and in so doing bring about a changed future. Well, thank you so much. Um, I feel like I've gotten um, a lot out of this discussion and thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, it was my pleasure. I love this project. I hope your students enjoyed learning a little bit about these uh, crazy uh, utopians and feel free to give them my email if they have direct questions, if any of them want to write on them. There's a lot of great sources out there. Uh, and so I'm happy to help in any way I can for them to explore this very unique moment in American history. Okay. Well, thank you. Podtextualizing the Past was created by Susan Stanfield, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Texas at El Paso, and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios. (laughs) 